We've been looking at the book of Isaiah for the last number of weeks, and um, as you might, may or may not recall, last week we talked about Isaiah chapter 7, and I talked with you about the fact that Isaiah, well even a few weeks back I told you that Isaiah has been called as a prophet to speak words to the community, both mainly Jerusalem, but all of Judea. And the idea is that God has already told Isaiah, the words you speak to them are the words I'm giving you. The words you speak to them are truth. The words you speak to them are meant to call them to repentance and to come back into right relationship with me. But the problem is you're going to speak words that are going to harden their hearts. And so, as I said a few weeks back, Isaiah has been called to speak a hard word to these people. He has a very difficult job. Last week, we talked about the fact that the nation of Judah, of which the capital is Jerusalem, they were watching as their brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had done an alignment with the nation of Aram. And the two of them were plotting to take over Judah and Jerusalem. And we talked a lot about all that was going on there. And we remember, if you, if you remember correctly, there was the, the word of God spoken by the prophet Isaiah of, trust me. Don't look at your circumstances. Trust me. I will be your source. I will be your shield. I will be your protector. And so now as we're moving into Isaiah chapter 8, we're still in that same scenario It's just further clarification from the prophet, further words. And so I want to just take some time. We're not going to go through the whole of the chapter, but we are going to go all the way down through chapter 8, verse 18. So it's going to be chapter 8, verses 1 through 18 that we look at this morning. I'm going to read through this and speak in between verses rather than reading all of it and then going back. I just want to do kind of a narrative for us this morning. So just keep your Bibles open. We're not going to do a lot of flipping around at all that I can think of. There's, there may be one time where we go to John, but other than that, it's just Isaiah chapter 8. So the Lord said to me, the Lord said to Isaiah, take a large scroll and write on it. Now, How many of you people see something other than the word scroll? Does anybody have something other than scroll? What do you have? Tablet. Wood. What? Wood, metal, or stone. I'm sorry? A a roll. Okay. Make a large signboard. Make a large signboard. See, what the deal was, the word in Hebrew can be interpreted scroll, tablet, roll, then the, and it depends on who's doing the interpreting. So basically, the idea is, uh, God is saying to Isaiah, I want you to get a huge signboard. And I want you, let's see what it says. I want you to call on, oh, start again. I want you to write on it with an, what does it say? Ordinary. An ordinary what? An ordinary pen. Well, they didn't have pens back in the day. So what in the world is this? What can you think that this might be? A chisel? Okay. A feather? A quill? You're wrong in all counts. 
What he's saying here is right in a way that the common human being could understand. It has nothing to do with the instrument that you're using to write. It's write words in such a way that the ordinary person on the street would be able to look at this sign and read it for themselves. Okay? So it's probably block letters, nothing formal or scrolly, nothing, there's one quote, one commentator I read said, no hieroglyphics, you know, just plain meat and potatoes message on a signboard. He then says, um, and write these words, Maher Shalal Hash Baz. So write that on the word, on the, in the big placard, put it up where everyone can see it, and they walk down their normal day to life and they see Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Does anybody have any um, notes in the bottom of their Bible that tells them what this means? What is it what? Quick as a plunder, swift as a what? Swift as the booty or the spoil. So this is a word of God saying, there's going to come a point where all of the plunder, all of the booty, all of the spoil is going to quickly be taken. But there's no indication of who's doing the taking and who's doing the losing. It doesn't say that. It's just a big placard posted up where everyone can see it in an ordinary fashion that says, Swift to the plunder, quick to the spoil or the booty or whatever it is. Okay? He then says, God's command, I am going to call Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zerubbakiah as reliable witnesses. So not only are you, Isaiah, going to do this placard, but you're going to do it, write it out and put it up in the presence of two witnesses. So that when the time comes that I make happen what this placard is representing, it will not be denied. It could not be denied because it has two leaders of the community who have witnessed you doing this before the event. So now it says, verse 3, So I went in and made love to my wife. That's what it says. I went to the prophetess, his wife, And in some versions, it literally says, I went in and made love to my wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And then the Lord said to me, when the son was born, name him Maher Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Wouldn't that be fun to write on the top of a paper when you have to take a test? Okay, little Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Seriously, that's wrong to name a little boy that. But this is what God ordered. And God says in the same prophets, prophetic utterance to Isaiah, he says, And before this boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, in other words, mama or dada, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, remember a couple, last week we talked about Samaria being the northern kingdom, Israel, and Aram, which is also known today as Syria. And those two countries had formed an alliance trying to take over Judah. And God is saying, 
before your son reaches the age where he's able to talk and just simply say simple words like mama, dada, these two nations are going to be plundered by Assyria, which was a great world power that was rising up at that time. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria, with all of his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep into the Judah, excuse me, excuse me, sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. What in the world does that mean? What God is saying is this. What is Shiloh? Does anybody have any clue what Shiloh is? Have have you ever heard of the pool of Siloam? What happened at the pool of Siloam in Jesus' day? There was a person also who was blind, who was told, Jesus put mud on his eyes. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. See, Siloam was a pool, a reservoir, inside the city of Jerusalem that they came, not only for healing, but they also got, that was their water supply. That's where they got water. How did the water get there? It was not as natural spring that came up from underneath. It was literally brought by way of an aqueduct. Now let's go back to John chapter 7, verse 3, I mean, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Just turn the page. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 3 says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go you out and your son Shear Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. That aqueduct that's mentioned in John 3, excuse me, Isaiah 7 3, ah, is the same aqueduct that brings the water to the pool of Siloam. It was the source of water for the city of Jerusalem, which water is life when you live in the desert. Okay? So it says, verse 6 of of chapter 8, because this people, talking about the nation of Samaria or Israel, the northern nation, this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh or Siloam, representing the life-giving qualities of God because they have rejected that and have instead aligned themselves with foreign powers there is going to be an even greater river coming in and flooding everything now we know because we have the benefit of hindsight we know that Assyria in a number of years came in and totally decimated all of northern Israel and Aram. And it happened about the time that, that the child was old enough to have been able to say Mama and Dada. Because it was a year, I mean nine months of conception and about a year old. So about nine, about, uh, about uh, 21 months old or 20 months old. So almost two years. And that's when, this, that's when this invasion of Assyria came and just wiped out all of northern kingdom. But what does it also say in verse, verse 8? It says, it is going this river, which is uh, the, the great river, which is the Euphrates, representing Assyria. This great river is going to sweep on even into Judah and swirling over it and passing through it and reaching up to the neck. 
Now, what do you picture? What, what, what is this idea that the, Isaiah, that the prophecy is talking about? About this water rising up to the neck of the nation of Judah. But not completely overwhelming it or over enveloping it. What, what can you picture in your head? Struggle and weakness. Okay. What was the capital of Judah? The city of Jerusalem. Okay. And the city of Jerusalem, literally geographically, is on a high hill. And so the image is the Assyrians are to come and knock out completely Aram, all of the northern part of Israel, and they're even going to overflow into the nation of Judah as if floodwaters would come up and overwhelm the whole thing. But God is going to say, stop, and they will not be able to take over the city of Jerusalem. Okay? So this is what the prophecy is. Isaiah is saying, continuing, you northern people, you think you formed this alliance over and against God's own word? God is still in control and God is going to allow the nation of Assyria to come in and wipe you out completely and take all of your plunder. Mahal, what was the name? Maher Shalal Hashbaz, quickly taking everything you have. And it's going to be such an incredible invasion that the Assyrians are literally going to come into the nation of Judah. It's not like we have a wall to stop them, folks. And so Judah is going to even be affected by this. But God promises the center of the government, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of, of Judah, will be protected from this invasion. We don't have time this morning to go into all of the history, but understand that that's exactly what happened. Now, we're going to skip just a tiny little bit and move down to verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me. What that's saying is that this is not the prophecy from Isaiah to the people of the northern kingdom. This is a separate prophecy. This is a time subsequent to that first prophecy where Isaiah is... In a very deep, rich, powerful time of intimacy with God. And the Holy Spirit of God settles in on him in power. And he begins to speak this prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it says, the words, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. What he was saying was this. I mean, we could go on and read. We will read a little bit more. But what he's saying with this second prophecy was, do not fall prey to what you're hearing all of the people of Jerusalem talking about. Because what has happened? Assyria has come in. The greatest nation at that time has literally come in and invaded Aram, which was the northeastern part above Jerusalem and Judah, come into the northern part, taking over all of, of northern Israel. And they even come into the area of Judah to the point of only Jerusalem is still its own entity, not under Assyrian domination. And the people in the city of Jerusalem are starting to lose hope. 
We are surrounded, folks. This is really bad. The aqueduct brings water into the city, but if they were to destroy the aqueduct or block up the spring at its source, we wouldn't have water. What are we going to do? We're going to die. They're going to kill us. They're going to treat us just like they did the northern kingdom. We're going to be plundered. Look at what the word of God says. And literally this panic starts happening in the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord says to them, to do, I mean to Isaiah, do not Heed what they are saying. Do not follow the way that this people is going. The Lord says, powerful words. The Lord says, do not call, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be your sanctuary. The world literally at that point was overwhelming to the people of the city of Jerusalem. They were threatened literally on all sides by the enemy and they had no hope and they were succumbing to the anguish and the fear and the anxiety and it was just being fed to them and the gossip and the Facebook posts were all going crazy about how bad it was. And the Lord Lord spoke through his prophet and said, you say to my people, you trust me. You depend on me. You keep your eyes focused on me. You do not allow anything to dissuade you from looking at your place of safety and sanctuary. I am the Lord. It does say in verse 14, both houses of Israel, that's the northern nation and the nation of Judah, will find this place of safety, this word, if you will, a stumbling block. It says that it will be a rock that causes these people to fall. How? Why? If you had this huge, unsurmountable obstacle blocking your way and the river waters were flooding and you were about to drown and God said, trust me. And you didn't trust him. What else would you do? Lay down and die? Drown? But it literally says, verse 14, these words will be for the people of Jerusalem a trap and a snare. They will not, because remember the word of God was, you are to speak my words of truth and you will understand that it's going to harden their hearts. They are not going to hear you, but you are to continue to speak it regardless of what your audience does. But jump down to verse 18. In chapter 8. Here am I. And the children the Lord has given me. And we are signs and symbols in Israel. From the Lord Almighty. Who dwells on Mount Zion. 
What in the world? Isaiah, after getting this horrible word that the people are not going to listen and they're going to fall away and you need to hold on, you need to hold on and you need to keep proclaiming this truth. And Isaiah literally says, and here I stand, me and my two boys. And we are signs and symbols from the Lord Almighty. What? What does, how in the world is he a symbol? Sure, he's a prophet, but what? Well, if we were to go back a few weeks in our study of this book, you would remember that the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. So here is Yahweh is salvation standing in the center of the city of Jerusalem. And on one side of him is quick and easy taking of the spoil and the booty. And the other side is, what was that kid's name? Somebody look at Je- John, I mean, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Don't say it yet, Jesse. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. What is the kid's name in Hebrew? Y'all supposed to have your Bibles open. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Okay, I'll read it. Sheer Jeshub. Okay, what does Sheer Jeshub mean, Jesse? A remnant shall return. So here Isaiah is saying, I and my two sons are standing here as a sign and a symbol to you, O Jerusalem, that Yahweh is your salvation. There is an enemy that is coming to take all, but there is a remnant. There is a remnant. Keep your eyes focused on your salvation. There is a remnant. Think about this, folks. How many of you have ever heard the story of Corrie Ten Boom and her family and the plight that they went through during World War II because they harbored Jewish people in their homes in Amsterdam and the end result was they got sent to the concentration camps and only one member of the family survived. Now, wait a minute. These people are Jesus followers. These people are lovers of God, doing what God called them to do, and God still allowed them to go into the concentration camp? What? How else would the people in the concentration camp hear the word of God? God allowed his own people, the ones who were still trusting in him, keeping their faith in him, who were that remnant, to still be taken into Babylon. It wasn't Assyria, but years later, Babylon came and destroyed everything and took them off. But there was a remnant. There was still a people of God, the people who were carrying the gospel story, the people who knew the promises of God, that there was a a promise on the land. There was a promise of covenant. There was a promise of an anointed one who was coming. And all of that promise was held in their souls as they were carried off into captivity by the enemy. But they held on as that righteous remnant. Regardless of how the world was going, they kept their eyes focused on the Lord God. 
The Lord Almighty. They held on to his promises. They continued to hide his word in their heart. And regardless of how bad things got, they knew the word of God said, God is salvation. And regardless of how bad the the world is going, there will always be a righteous remnant that will make it through to the end. Now, how in the world does any of this apply to Holy Week? That's what took so long. No, I'm just kidding. That was the fast part of this message. Think about it. It's the end of three years. Jesus is ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus, we love you. You're the Messiah. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Three days later, Jesus is at a table with his friends having a last meal. And he says to them, oh, by the way, I'm going to be dead by this time tomorrow. What was the response of the guys? They couldn't stay awake to help pray. Peter denied him audibly in public. And after Christ's death, they ran to an upper room and hid behind locked doors for fear of their own lives. The righteous remnant. The righteous remnant. Their actions are not negative. Because what God did through all of that was he allowed Jesus to be abandoned. The only human being who was worthy to die on a cross for us. But the righteous remnant still held on to their faith and hid in safety until God called them out. And within 40 days, folks, 3,000 people were added to the household of God. And now 2,000 years later, look what God is doing. So there's this idea of it doesn't matter how bad things are. It doesn't matter how rotten things may be. It doesn't matter how frightening your circumstances may be. Keep your eyes on your God. Jehovah is your salvation. There is no promise that you will not go through the hard time. There is no promise that you will be miraculously snatched out of the jaws of death. But there is the promise that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And there is the prophetic word of God Almighty himself That throughout all of time, there will be a righteous remnant that never walks away from the truth. And my encouragement to myself and to you, as you spend this week reflecting on what Jesus did for you on the cross, is are you truly a member of the righteous remnant? Because guess what, folks? The world is crashing down around us. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. It would be nice if he'd come back tomorrow. I wouldn't have to do all that administration. (laughs) But the reality is, whether he comes back tonight or tomorrow or 20 years from now or 2,000 years from now, he will never leave you. And you have the truth. And as you're walking through this dark and dismal world where people, through their Facebook posts, and their Twitter posts, and their coffee clutches, and their conversations over the water cooler at work, 
are all in a panic because there's no good candidate or there's no good this. Oh, look, they're, they're doing these bad things or our world is falling apart, our economy is bad. All of that. You can stand there with confidence and say, my God has never changed through all of this. And I can offer you hope if you'll listen. That's what it means to be a part of the righteous remnant. We are going to spend some time this morning taking communion. But before we do, I want us to just be quiet for a moment and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. If you need to get up and walk around or come over here and spend some time around these worship elements, that's fine. Uh, Mary, you have somebody already planned to, to pick up the... Okay, Beverly Morley. And, and I'll, I'll give some instructions in a second, but I just want to be quiet for a few moments. Um, there's a reading I want to do, and then um, we'll spend some time in prayer. The reading is um, the reading is a hymn by Charles Wesley. It's called "O Love Divine, What Hast Thou Done?" O Love Divine, What Hast Thou Done? The Immortal God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me hath died. My Lord, my love, is crucified. Is crucified for me and you to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. Ye all are, brought, are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for all flows from his side. My Lord, my love is crucified. Behold him, all ye that pass by, the bleeding prince of life and peace. Come, sinners, see your Savior die, and say, was ever grief like his? Come, Feel with me his blood applied. My Lord, my love, my crucified.